what our process is, process is here in ordaining elders, all right? Uh, elders and uh, those who are training to be elders are extremely important in this church. Now, for those of you who may know this or don't know this, I want to share it just so I uh, am not assuming that all of us do. Elders are pastors. They're the same as pastors. There's no difference whatsoever. There are three terms used in the New Testament to refer to elders. The one, obviously, that I just used is the word elder. It has the Greek word behind it, presbyteros. We get the word presbyterian from it. And then you have another word that is used, bishop, and that's the word episkopos. We get episcopalian from it. It means overseer. It's used in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 and other portions of Scripture. I think it is uh, Philippians 1. And then there's one other word that is used, poimame, which is used in the verb form to refer to pastor or shepherd. Those three terms are used synonymously to refer to the same office in a local church called elder, pastor, bishop, um, and those are all there. Uh, if you've ever been around Alton, you know he jokes a little bit uh, whenever he calls me bishop. And that's not because I have some silly hat on my head and I'm part of the Roman Catholic Church or something. That has nothing to do with it at all. He's just referring to something that a long time ago we kind of joked about. Whenever he asked me, what should I call you? I said, call me Bishop. And I was joking, but he didn't. He took it seriously and has ever since. So, but honestly, folks, with me, I'm your pastor, okay? And here's another thing to be clear on. Every person who becomes an ordained elder in this church becomes your pastor, okay? There's no difference, no difference. Uh, I, might ha I might be full-time. They may be bivocational in the sense that they work a job and then they still become elders in this church. So as far as the scripture is concerned, the New Testament pattern is very clear on this, and I have yet to understand why churches don't get it, but it's very clear. Elders are those that govern the New Testament church, and they always exist in a plurality in a church, not one guy but a plurality of elders in a church. Uh, that rules against a number of things. It stops the dominance of one man. Uh, it also stops uh, the, the uh, celebrity status, if you will, of one man. It enables wisdom uh, because of what happens whenever you have more than one mind together. I would hate to think what would happen if my thoughts were the only thoughts that were considered. Because there's many times, even sitting in the meetings that I've been in, both with my deacons and my elders, that I have found wisdom from these men. And I have corrected my view and corrected my decision and my direction because of these men. I trust every one of these men in this church who are deacons or elders, every one of them. They're godly men. They love the Lord. And so I, I have no problem sitting down with them and listening to what they have to say and saying, listen, you know what? I think you're right. I think we'll go that way or whatever. So the New Testament pattern, however, for elders is a plurality of them, and they're all the same. So when someone becomes an ordained elder, they are a pastor of that local church. All right? Now, what about the process of ordination in this church? How do we do it? Now, not every church, every church doesn't do it the same. All right? Some don't do as much as others, uh, but we do it a little different here. I have modeled our approach for training and ordaining elders from two sources. One, the Puritans. Two would be also Grace Community Church, where John MacArthur pastors, and what I'd learned years ago about how they go about ordaining elders in their church. Now, this is not a small matter. It's a huge matter in any local assembly. Because what you're talking about whenever you ordain an elder is this. This is a permanent position. Apart from being disqualified, you are a permanent elder in that church. All right? 
The only way out of it is to die <laughs> or to be disqualified or move or something like that. But the point is, it's not like we're on and off, on and off, on and off, you know, or something like that. It's permanent. Nothing in Scripture teaches otherwise. And there's nothing wrong with a sabbatical for an elder, too, which means sometimes elders may need a vacation or a time away. There's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of uh, responsibility that goes along with that. So how do we go about that here? Well, first of all, you seek out the men. And I want to add, just, just in case there's any lack of clarity on this, elders must be men. Okay? They must be men. It says very clearly in First Timothy, without going to any other text, it's very clear, first of all, just by the masculine terms that are used for overseer, pastor, and shepherd, and elder. But also beyond that, you have the fact that he must be the husband of one wife, which is more importantly a one-woman man. It is impossible then for a woman to meet the qualifications of an elder because he, she cannot be a one-woman man in the sane world, okay, where we all live, Right? Anyway, so you seek out those men. How do you do that? Well, first of all, whenever someone comes to our church and they become a member of our church, I mean, we're already looking, already noticing, you know, this man, his life, his family. What is he about? What's he committed to? Uh, all those things become pretty obvious over time. And then conversations occur as you spend more time with them. And you may ask them, you know, do you desire the office of an elder or a deacon? And they they may be gifted, you've noticed, that to teach or something like that, and they have a love for Christ and their households are in order, and yet they want to do something like that, and they're qualified, and so then you want to begin to seek them to become an elder in your church. They have to have a desire for it. This is not a vote into office whether they want it or not. They have to, have, they have to be driven for it because that's, sometimes that's the only thing that keeps you there is that passion to be there. But just for a moment, I want you to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5, okay? And let's look at a couple of verses there. I'm not going to do a complete exposition of this. It would take weeks to do so. I just want to highlight a few things about the office of elder in the local church and local assembly. 1 Timothy chapter 5. The reason why I'm doing this is not only to have it uh, recorded so we can reference it in the future for those who have come to our church who are not aware of it, but also... Because in these next few months, most likely by the time we get close to summertime, we're going to end up with three ordinations here in this church, Sandy Allen, Chris Olds, and Mark Corral. And so there's going to be a process that's going to be occurring that you're going to be familiar with and involved in as we go through that process here in our church. And then we have some other men that are in the process of training right now that are going to be following up behind them as they finish their training and examinations. So let me just read the text. I'm just going to go through a couple of things, highlight a few things. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, it says, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. First of all, notice it's elders, plural, that they are the ones who rule in the church. That is not dictatorship. They rule by example and through the authority of Scripture only. Okay? I've told you that before. They rule well. He says, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor. That means they should be paid well, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. And that means that there is, at times, a separation among the elders. There may be those who labor more in word and doctrine, where others may not necessarily labor in word and doctrine as much. They may be gifted more toward, toward administration or biblical counseling, whereas the other elder may be one who really centers in on teaching, instruction, 
doctrine. It doesn't mean that all the elders couldn't do that. It just simply means you recognize those who do labor hard in the word of doctrine because there could be a difference among your elders. Each one's gifted differently, and everyone teaches differently here in this church. No one's going to preach like I do, and I hope they don't. You don't need two of me. You know, you need different varieties, and that's helpful. Believe me, it really is, especially for the health of the church. So it says in verse 18, uh, the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while you treads out the grain, and the labor is worthy of his wages. And that simply means pay the preacher. That's what it means. Give him money to live on. Don't starve him to death. Don't make him go look for chickens on his own. You know, whatever. You know, he's got to have. He's got to have the basic necessities of life. And I've always said that here. You guys have treated me well and our family well. We're well taken care of. And this has been an exceptional church regarding that here at Covenant. Verse 19, do not receive an accusation against an elder except from the mouth of two or three witnesses. Now, this is for the protection of the elder because there's a lot of things that swirl around that are brought up that accuse elders uh, wrongly. It's not saying an elder can't sin. He can sin. He can sin and disqualify himself, and he can sin and not disqualify himself. But the point is, is whenever there's an accusation brought against an elder, you can't just, the point is, you can't just make it up. There has to be some proof about it. You know, so that's what it's guarding against there. And then verse 20, those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may be feared. There's debate among um, the scholars who look at this text as to whether this is among the elders or among the church. Is the, rep, is the rebuking to be um, among the elders or uh, in the presence of the church? And I say this, it depends upon the sin. If there's a sin that occurs in the elders, and let's just say, there's an elders meeting going on and one day the elder gets fired up and he gets angry and he loses his temper among the elders. Well, then he deals with it with them. But if the elder sins in such a way that it's a public sin that the church knows about, whether it's in the church or outside the church among the world, it needs to be rebuked publicly to the church or so that he's brought before the whole church. Now, you think about that just for a moment, the severity of that. That highlights the elevation of this office where it goes. I mean, because there's high accountability with the office of elder. So, Paul says in verse 21, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. In other words, not because you just like the guy, not because he gives more money to the church, not because he's just good at administration, or maybe he's a good teacher. Everyone gets treated exactly the same. And here's the next point, verse 22. Do not lay hands on one hastily. This specifically affects how we go about it here at this church. I've had people ask me, why does it take so long to get an elder ordained in this church? Because of this verse right here. Do not lay hands on a man hastily. There's a process involved that I'll go through in just a few moments that allows for that to be fulfilled so that you're not laying hands on a man hastily without getting to know that man and to know him and his family and his desires and his wants and his failures and his, you know, his temptations and all of those things that you need to be aware of as he comes into the office of elder in a local assembly. So you don't want to lay hands on him hastily, which is referring to ordination. He goes through a process. Nor share other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. And the point there is accountability for the other elders. Listen, do you realize that if you kind of flippantly go through this and you put a guy in ministry that is not qualified to be in ministry, do you realize you're sharing in that man's sins? I mean, you're just as accountable for that. 
I've told many of you before, I was absolutely just saddened would be a light word for it, disappointed, uh, disturbed uh, with my ordination uh, because I had already read a lot about how it should be, and then I was in a Southern Baptist church, and they brought together men out of the Lexington Baptist Association who didn't know me from anybody. They didn't know who I was at all. They'd never met me before. They showed up on the day of ordination and ordained me. There was only one man there, actually two, the pastor and the associate pastor, who knew me, but there were literally no questions at all, none. It was only just... Are you going to give to the cooperative program if you become a pastor in our association? Are you going to get to the Lexington Association? So I volunteered my doctrinal statement. I basically volunteered what I believe. I don't know if they even cared, but I gave it to them anyway. And, you know, I just know that this is a serious matter, and it needs to be taken seriously, and it needs to be done in such a way that honors the Lord and is obedient to his word. So then he goes on and says, uh, make sure you do this, not hastily, lest you end up partaking in that person's sins keep yourself pure and then he says go get some wine (laughs) which is probably what you need after you go through this process (laughs) I told someone tonight I said I've already ordered my six pack of NyQuil on the way home that's as close as I'll ever get to it anyway I want to share a story with you well Luke you're going to have to delete this out because Angela's going to kill me but so I was uh I was before I was able to be full time here. I was doing cabinets, and uh, I was working in a home, going toward Orangeburg. I remember that. I don't remember the exact location now. Uh, there was a man there who, who liked to make scuppernine wine. All right, does everyone know what a scuppernine is? Okay, I've actually met a few people recently who don't have a clue what that is. They're very, very good. All right, so just when you see them in the grocery store, get you some and eat them. All right, they're good grapes. Uh, <clears throat> anyway. So this man made some scuppernine wine, and so I did some cabinets for him and did a little bit of extra work for him, you know. Uh, he wasn't uh, very wealthy. He needed some help, so I gave him some free work. And he said, Charles, he said, I just really want to give this to you. He, he brought out this bottle, and I didn't know what it was at first. I mean, obviously, by the shape of the bottle, I figured it wasn't just water. And he said, I want to give you some of my scuppernine wine. I, make, I said, I forgot his name. I think his name was John. I said, John, I can't take that. I said, I'm a pastor. I can't take that. He said, that's no problem. I said, I'm a Baptist pastor, not a Presbyterian, all right? So anyway, uh, he said, no, please, just take it. I said, okay, I'll take it. I'll use it for medicine. And I took it, walked in the house with it. I mean, I couldn't even probably get in the door with it. And I said, Angela, look what I got. Told her what it was. She took it from my hand and poured it down the drain. Didn't even get a chance to taste it. Anyway, so that's totally unrelated to everything I've just said, okay? (laughs) Don't hold me accountable and don't tell Angela. Luke, delete that, okay? She's probably watching. Verse 24, some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment. Now, here's what you have here in the process again. Through the process of being trained to be an elder, you learn about that man. You learn his weaknesses. You learn his strengths. You learn where he's helpful, where he's not helpful. You get to know him. If there's sins that are disqualifying, that process usually will turn them up. Not always, but it usually does. And if there's like, you know, you you get to know the guy and you just say, man, that guy really has a problem, you know. 
and he's got these issues in his life constantly or whatever. Or you find out after, you know, he's been around a while that he goes home and beats his wife. You know, you're like, whoa, hold on a minute here. Whoa, putting a halt on this. So the point is, is that as he goes through the process of being ordained, you begin to evaluate the man. And some men's sins are clearly evident preceding the judgment or the evaluation to become an elder. But he says, but also those of some men follow later. In other words, sometimes it's after the fact. And you don't, you don't catch it. And it becomes an issue whether he has to repent or it becomes a disqualifying sin in his life. Likewise, he says, the good works of some are clearly evident and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. So, in other words, what Paul is telling us here is that this is not a hastily done, you know, one month the guy's appointed to be an elder and he's an elder. No, there should be a process involved whereby you have opportunity to get to know him and to see him and to learn about him, and he learns about you and the church and everything else along with it. So how does it look here at CBC? How does it look here at Covenant Baptist? What do we do? Well, this is what we do, and it may change and it may kind of get improved or whatever or some things may change in the future, but this is basically what happens. The quality and qualifications and the giftedness of the men are usually noticed, first of all. You know, you see a guy who loves to teach the Word of God, studies the Scripture, seems to do that with his home, loves his family, leads his family to Christ, uh, loves the church, and you begin to notice those things. And they kind of stand out. And then you begin to talk to him and you ask him, do you have a desire to be an elder? And if he says, yes, I would desire to be an elder, I would like to do that. And if the existing elders who are ordained in the church and leadership agree with that, then this man can begin the process. doesn't mean he's ordained. It just means he begins the process. All right? And it doesn't mean he's an elder. Uh, you know, some confusion is, is that when we use the word elder in training, that that's another office in the church. No, it is not another office in the church. It is just a process. We're, we're recognizing that that person is in the training process to become an elder. He is not an elder yet, but he is in the process of becoming an elder in the church. What is the process here in this church? Well, you begin by reading six books, sometimes seven books. Uh, on biblical eldership, pastoral ministry, expository preaching, biblical counseling, the doctrines of grace, and then there's other books along with that and articles that are given. There's also, after those are read, a 400-question exam uh, that covers biblical literacy, theology, theology proper, doctrines of grace, eschatology, uh, practical pastoral ministry, and counseling. All of that's involved in it. And then number three, there's going to be a private personal examination among the other elders and elders in training whereby that man has an opportunity to be asked questions some of them personal in the elders meeting then there's going to be a public examination here in the church in other words that person who's going to be ordained in our church will be allowed to uh, sit before you and you can ask questions now the key to that is it's not going to be an open forum where people just say hey we're going to stump the elder." Let's see if we can stump him, find out what Bible verse he doesn't know, you know. Where's Jesus wept, you know, something like that. And no, we're not doing that. Those, those will be done like Ligonier does and others who do this. They screen those questions so you don't end up with something just really off the wall that doesn't even need to be asked. So, but anyway, it will be an opportunity for you to ask questions of that man. Listen, we live among you. That's why I told you earlier there is no such thing as a flat screen preacher because you... 
you live with your pastor. You live with your elders. You know them. You live with them. You spend time with them. You talk to them. You go to their homes and things like that. So that's, that is part of the process. And during this whole process, the candidate who is going to become an elder will meet with the other elders on a regular basis in the elders' meetings. He will get involved in decision-making expressing his own personal opinions and ideas and biblical commitments. He will, talk, he will agree sometimes and disagree with what decisions are made. And that's important to know how he handles that. Uh, also, he will help with teaching and preaching and the ministry opportunities that avail itself in the church, like counseling, administrative duties. One of the things we have done in this church, and you haven't learned about it yet in detail, is that we've tried to divide some of the responsibilities up in this church that were all on me. And these guys are helping me tremendously with some of these things that always landed on me. And so that's becoming a process here. Now, the reason for the length and extent of the training, here it is. The reason why it goes so long, sometimes two years, sometimes four years, depending on the man, his responsibilities at his job and his family, is you get to know the man and his family. Right? There won't be somebody brought here from seminary so-and-so and you don't know who he is. Not to say we couldn't do that in the future, but there would have to be a process involved whereby we would get to know the man and his family and his ministry. And then you see him in ministry. You see the good, the bad, and the ugly about that man, right? When something stands out, it becomes obvious to us all. And if there are issues of sin and character that could disqualify the man, it allows for that to express itself. It also allows the congregation to get to know the man and his family more. It allows time for the training that he will need because of the extensive responsibilities that he has, because of the permanent nature of the office. And here's a couple of clarifications, and I just want to make this clear. I said it once before, but I'll say it again. An elder in training is not an office in the church. He does not carry the authority of an elder in a church. On decisions, on, in elders' meetings, his vote does not count for legal authority. In other words, if there were a legal matter involved, we would have to have only the ordained elders vote on that matter. Now, that's problematic. You know why? Because we only have two right now that are ordained. That's going to change in the next few months, which I'm thanking God for. But it takes process to get there. You don't want to just rapidly go through this. Once ordained, he has the exact same authority that any pastor would have. Exact same authority. He will be able to marry someone. He will be able to do funerals if he wants to. He will be able to teach and preach in the local church. Uh, all, all that I can do, he can do. Okay? There's no difference at all. Some churches do make a difference. We don't make a difference here. And the reason why we don't make a difference is there's nothing in Scripture that says we should. It just is uh, pretty clear to me. So hopefully that helps with what we're doing here at the church. So you'll see some of that begin to develop toward the latter part of our spring here at this church as we get closer to it. I know Mark is just eager to jump into his position. And by the way, uh, you guys don't get a chance to see him much because he's up in Rock Hill and his family, Allie, and their children, uh, which them, just their family by themselves could make a small church. But they are doing a wonderful job. And we're I'm up there twice a month preaching and being with them and on conversations with Mark and also... Uh, David, my friend, who's a pastor in Eastover, he's up there every single Sunday leading the music with his friend Pat, who plays the piano. So there's this constant involvement. And any time you guys want to come up there and be a part of that worship service on four on Sunday, it makes for a long day, 
but it makes for a good day, and they would always welcome you and love to have you. I can point out a very good place to get ice cream that I go every single time. <laughs> anyway, so that does that. Now, what I want to do is turn our attention to something else, all right? And uh, I've only got a few minutes left, so I told you a sermonette, right? And it may be quick. We'll just see. I'm not going to keep you long. Uh, you guys uh, know all of this. I'm not going to say anything you don't know this tonight, but I want to just emphasize something. I want to talk about unity, unity in our church now and in the future. Now, before I get started on that, I'll have you open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Just get settled there. And I want to say this. I said it earlier, and I want to say it again. This church is one of the best churches on this planet. Okay? Now, I've been to some good churches, but God has blessed us here, folks. He has really, really blessed us here. We have so many wonderful people here at this church, wonderful families, people who love the Word of God and are just desirous of it. And it is a tremendous responsibility and an enormous challenge to preach here. I mean, I preached in some churches, you wondered if they were still alive. You know, they don't care what you say in the pulpit. You care. And that means a lot to me. It keeps me straight. Sometimes it makes me dig a little deeper to make sure I'm a little more accurate on something. Because I know if I don't, somebody's going to come to me after the service and say, Charles, what about this? And that's healthy. It is healthy. We need that because, listen, no one here is the final deposit of truth, and we need all of us together. And this is one thing that is very effective about this church, and I believe that's one of the reasons why God is continuing to bless it is because it isn't that we just have one family or two families or one person or two people who just love the Word of God and everybody else just kind of comes. I don't know of anyone who comes here who doesn't love the Word of God and love the Scripture. And, you know, if they're going to put up with our services, you know, of one hour of preaching, sometimes longer, and three hymns and no lights and fog, I mean, obviously they like something, right? They like the Word of God. So you get there, settled there in Ephesians, okay? So unity. Unity in a church, and that's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about political unity. I'm not talking about scholarly unity. I'm not talking about any of those things. I'm talking about unity in the body of Christ, and let's just not, let's not make it something that's out there for those people in those churches. Let's think about us, okay? Let's think about our church, Covenant Baptist Church right here on Del Rey Street in West Columbia. Unity is absolutely essential for the mission and ministry of this church. Absolutely essential. The effectiveness of this church as salt and light as the proclaimer of truth and the steward of the truth is directly tied to its unity. We are called by God and commanded by God to have unity, not at the expense of truth. It doesn't mean that we compromise the truth, but we have unity because of the truth and through the truth. That's how we have unity. And we don't have unity at the expense of love and forgiveness. No, we have unity because of love and forgiveness for one another. And the unity of this church is a manifestation, listen to this, of the triune God. God has chosen to put on display his own unity through the church. So when churches are not unified, they're corrupting the representation of God to the world which is a heavy responsibility 
There's no other better way to display the triune God, the unity of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, than by the unity that dwells in the body of Christ. The church that has unity has truth and has love. It has patience and it has gentleness. A church that is unified has long-suffering and humility that exists there. The church that has people like ours come from all different backgrounds. Every one of you are different. Every one of you. You have different personalities, different perspectives. Some of you have different theological beliefs than me. Some of you uh, have a different uh, view of the rapture or no rapture or your eschatology is different. Some of you may believe in the immutability of Christ and some of you don't believe in the immutability of Christ. We all have some varieties of views on those issues. But the unity that we have is a reflection of the power of the gospel of Christ. A church that can stay unified in the midst of trials and temptations and in the context of very different sinful weaknesses and habits and can bear with one another with love, without anger and vengeance, is a testimony to the very power of God in the lives of his people in that church. And we're challenged here at CBC. We really are. All of us are different. In some cases, we're very different, right? We all have strengths and weaknesses. Some of you are vocal. Some of you are very vocal. And some of you are very quiet, and don't have a lot to say. Not that you don't think a lot, but you just don't say a lot. And you might be in better position than a lot of our vocal people because you don't have as many words to be accountable for on the day of judgment. And then some are strongly opinionated, like me, and some simply don't care. I'm not meaning that in a mean way. They just don't want to get wrapped up in all the debates that happen. I don't mind getting in it. And we will get in it sometimes. You can ask uh, Laura and Angela at our house. Luke and I sometimes get in it. And we'll debate it for hours. And none of us, neither one of us know when to stop. You know, it's just one of those things that happens. Uh, we have different political views. Not a lot, but we do. There's different economic views. We're all over the map, as I said, theologically. But we're still unified in the gospel of Christ and the person of Christ. I can't think of any other church that has such unity on that and commitment to it. We're not going to compromise, period, at all. We won't. We're not going to do it. So we have great unity in the gospel because we have the great Savior that we all love together, and we love his word and desire to see that other people are saved and come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so we're not going to water down, compromise, or diminish the gospel at all, no matter what the results may be. But if the church is unified as a church can be and this church is a strong church in the area of its doctrine and in its practice but please understand this this church as good as it is can be destroyed it can be there are examples in church history and there are current churches that i am aware of personally that used to be very very strong in the pulpit very very strong in winning others to christ very strong in its evangelism and missions, very strong in its unity, but have sensed abandoned truth and are barely a fraction of those things anymore and barely effective, if at all, in the world and the community they live. And compromised churches, you all know this, compromised churches are no threat to the devil. 
Uh, he's not worried about that. In fact, he's very pleased if you're a compromised church. It only feeds his machine to destroy the souls of men. But a church that is committed to the truth and stands in the truth for the love of the truth and in unity by the power of the Holy Spirit is a target for satanic attack. Now, I'm not saying the devil showed up here. I'm not sure if we're the priority on his list, but I can grant you based upon the word of God that we're not off the list. We're on it. And attacks can come very subtle in a church like this, a church that's committed to the integrity of the doctrines, a church that is committed to the sufficiency of the Bible, a church that's committed to love for one another, a church that is committed to practicing what the Word of God says. Sometimes Satan can actually use your passion and your desire for godly things to destroy the unity of the church. He usually comes in the back door, and he doesn't look like the devil. He looks like commitment. And you have to be very, very careful with that. Very careful. Just as much as the devil can use our lack of commitment to destroy the church in its unity, he can also use your commitment. So be aware of that. A couple of verses as we close out tonight. I'm just going to share a few of them. And they come from a number of portions of Scripture. And you don't have to turn to them. You can just listen to them because I want you to stay there in Ephesians John 17, 20, you know this because Jesus prayed this prayer. He's praying for you. He's praying for us. He's praying for the church. He says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and that they also may be one in us, and that the world may believe that you sent me. Did you notice the connection that the world's belief of Christ and the unity with the Father is dependent upon our unity. He goes on and says, And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Our evangelism and our testimony and our representation to the world is directly related to our unity. Acts 4.32 says, now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and of one soul. 1 Corinthians 12, 25 and following says there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, then all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, then all the members rejoice with it. Philippians 1, 27, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come to see you or I am absent, that I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel of Christ. And then Philippians 2, 1 and following, Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship in the spirit, any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. First Peter says, finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tenderhearted and courteous, not rendering evil or returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, return blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Romans 14, 16, therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking in righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy, but, but peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things which one may edify another with. And then he goes on and says, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food, which was the context of the division that occurred in the church at Rome. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 says, Now I plead with you. This is Paul talking to a very divided church in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I plead with you, brethren, by the, same, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you speak all the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, my by those of Chloe's household, that there are some contentions or divisions among you. Now I say to you that each one of you says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? One of the things he was addressing there is that celebrity status problem that goes on whenever someone is saved under someone's ministry or they listen intently to one particular man for a long time, and that becomes the one person that they kind of determine everything else by. And you need to be careful with that because we live in that culture now where that can happen. And, you know, I, com- I completely all, I, I mean, I really understand this because, number one, I listen to a lot of other men who preach the word of God and are committed to the truth of Scripture. But we want to be careful that we don't pit one man against another all the time like that. You know, we want to make sure that we honor the Lord and be eager to listen to others, too. And be careful with that. Second Corinthians thirteen eleven says, finally, my brethren, farewell. Become complete. Be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. And then even, do you know that in Ephesians 4.11, you're there in Ephesians 4, that the Bible tells us that God gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the pastors and teachers for the purpose of equipping the saints so that they would become unified. It even says it like that, for he himself, Jesus, gave some to be apostles and some prophets, some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints or perfecting of the saints or maturing of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying and building up of the body of Christ until we come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Not just doctrinally unified, but practically unified in our practice of our doctrine. So let's look at this passage, Ephesians 4. This is going to come really quick because it's just a simple look at it. Ephesians 4, 1 and following. Listen to what Paul says. Ephesians 4, 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with longsuffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Before I go any further, I want you to understand something. That what I am saying here tonight, I am saying to me, okay? I am a hard-headed, one-track-minded person. And sometimes I'm going to get my way, okay? And I have to back off and say, all right, Lord, you're much bigger than me. You've ruled this place for a long time. You can take care of it whether I'm here or not, right? And so we have to understand what the Bible says is sometimes take our hearts and our minds and bend them to scripture what the bible says so just a couple of thoughts about it verse one he says he beseeched them that's the old king james version or the new king james uh, parakaleo it means to call alongside it it means to plead for 
The word beseech is really a good translation of it because it has the idea almost of begging. And that's really what Paul has in mind here, not just to come along and make a gentle call, but he's coming alongside of you, urging you, exhorting you. In other words, this is urgent to Paul that you do this. And what does he ask for? To walk worthy. In other words, walk worthy of the gospel. Bring your life up to the standard of the gospel of Christ. Well, how do we do that? Verse 2. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What does he mean by lowliness? Well, uh, humility, basically. Humility. Um, The idea behind this word lowliness in the original text is to esteem ourselves correctly. All right? It means biblically. Don't think too highly of yourself uh, because you can be replaced. (laughs) That's the way it works. For the sinner, like all of us are, this word involves confession of his sin, a deep realization of your unworthiness to receive God's marvelous grace. In other words, what we all know about our salvation in humility, we express that in our relationship with others, our humility with them. And then gentleness, gentleness, something I'm not necessarily uh, known for, gentleness. But it is an attitude and a behavior he's talking about, not just a mental concept. An attitude of gentleness and a behavior of gentleness. And what that basically means is someone that's not harsh, okay, someone that is meek, mild, and meek is not weak, Meek is basically, as one said, power under control. Uh, You may have authority. You may have uh, knowledge. You may have uh, something down very well that you understand, but you are gentle with your approach uh, because you're not going to be harsh with someone. You're meek. The synonyms of that are actually fairness and moderation, expressing uh, dealings with others. Kindness is, is a synonym of this. The opposite of that of this word translated here, gentleness, is anger, indignation. Uh, So you see that. The next word is long-suffering, that we should be long-suffering. A common word in the New Testament, macrothemia. And the word macrothemia basically means patience with people. There's another word, hupomone, that means patience with circumstances or the environment you're in. But whenever you're dealing with people, You need that long-suffering. And really, long-suffering, although an old way of translating the word, is really a good way to translate it. Because what it means is you suffer long with people. You know, you suffer long with people. And the idea behind that is, is that you don't respond with vengeance. You don't respond in anger. You're careful to make sure that your response is godly and gentle and meek and loving. All of those things that are there. And then also, there's the... um, the word here in the last part of this text, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love. And these verbs here are present tense, meaning we ought to always be doing this. Specifically here, it, the word bearing is a present participle, which means it should characterize us as those that are continually bearing with one another. And the word that is translated here in your, Greek, your English text, bearing with one another, is to hold up or to back up from falling Uh, to catch, you know, someone falling over, to catch, to bear someone, you get that idea. 
But in the context of afflictions or persecution, it means to bear up patiently under those things. To basically understand that God sovereignly, providentially, and caringly and lovingly has ordained this for you in your life at this time, and you are to bear up patiently. But whenever it has to do with people here, because specifically he's talking about unity in the church, and that's what's behind Paul's word, bear with one another, it has the idea of being patient in regard to errors and weaknesses in people. Um, the idea is this, is that, you know, all of us have blind spots, right? All of us have places in our theology that aren't quite right. And we may not believe we do, but we do. And uh, whenever we finally find them out, we usually try to correct them, hopefully, right? And as you grow in Christ, you find more along the way. I'm still in that process. And you are too. I hope you are. If you think you finally arrived, we need to talk about humility following the service, but the point is, is that we bear with others who aren't there yet. We bear with others who may have error. We bear with others who, of course, um, have weaknesses, whatever they may be. Uh, they could be weaknesses spiritually weak. Spiritually weak. Uh, they could be physical weak. They could be mentally weak, emotionally weak. I mean, whatever it is, you bear with other, one another. And there's a lot of words that even are used in synonym to that, like being more tolerable, tolerable of others. And the, the antonym of that is not to judge them not to judge them. And then he says you are to endeavor another present part, participle, spudazzo. It means to earnestly, diligently, eagerly endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Behind Paul's words are the, the, the emphasis that you see through the whole New Testament. He understands the essential point that churches must sometimes set aside their own desires and let the unity of the church move forward so that we can be better at displaying the gospel of Christ and the trinity of God before the world. And um, that's so, so essential. And I would encourage you to even reread those verses and to look back at them again. You know, someone once said that two cats tied together are together, but they're not unified, right? And that's exactly the truth. We can all be together and we all say, hey, brother, hey, sister, how are you doing? But we may, we may not all have unity. And one of the things I have noticed here in this church, though, is that whenever we, we are found out by God's spirit to have things that we need to correct, one of the things I've noticed in this church is there is the correction. And that's a blessing. There is a blessing in that. So let's do this as we close tonight. Let's do this. Let's all walk worthy of the calling that we've been called to with all lowliness and gentleness long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, and so there display the very, very power of God and the gospel of Christ to the world. Amen? So next Wednesday, when we come together, we will have our prayer at 6. We'll have our study in the book of Romans. Uh, I'll have to go back and figure out where I was and pick up from there, and I would encourage you to pray for that. Pray for our leadership. Pray for those that are going to be in the process of being ordained in the future, near future. Pray also for our decision on what we can do for some other corporate prayer in our church uh, Sunday afternoons or Sunday evenings, what works best for those who can come. And um, so I want you to make that a top priority in your prayers for us all. Amen. And don't forget the announcements about the rally. Keep that in the forefront. Uh, we need to keep that in our prayer life, too. So I hope you have a good night. Thank you for coming and being patient with me. So let's pray together, all right?
Father, thank you so much for our time together. We ask you, God, to bless our time. We ask you, Lord, to help us to honor you in all that we do. And, Lord, I pray that we would be those kind of people that are walking worthy of the gospel that you have given to us. We pray, Lord Jesus, that as we are trying our best to do what you called us to do, that we would do it in such a way that you are pleased. Lord, may your spirit correct those errors in our hearts and our minds, uh, that you would expose those things so that we would be able to repent of those things and to be able to be corrected. And Lord, we ask that you would create in the hearts and minds of all of our people here, not only here on Wednesday night, but all throughout our church body, uh, an attitude of forgiveness and love and gentleness, lowliness, long-suffering with one another and bearing up one another. And Lord God, we thank you for that. You are so patient with us and you love us so very much. Lord, bring us back at the next appointed time on the Lord's Day as we gather here in this blessed place to worship you. And I pray, Father, for those that may be coming for the first time here Sunday, that you would use the word of God and the worship here among the people here to bring conviction in their heart and edification to their souls. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.